the second uh, service that we have on the first Sunday of the month is our opportunity for communion, for the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we call it the Eucharist, a Greek word for Thanksgiving, even the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper. And it's an opportunity for us to worship the Lord in a very solemn and special way, a way that he designated our Lord Jesus Christ on the night before he was crucified was involved in the Passover supper with his disciples. And while in the Passover supper, he changed the Passover meal from a meal that looked back on Israel's past to what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for them coming out of Egypt now to something that would be done the next day, something that the Lord Jesus Christ would do not just for Israel, but for the entire world, for the entire human race. And he was going to the cross. Our Lord Jesus Christ was going to the cross. And the focus now is no longer on the omnipotence of God and his great action, his great works in Israel's history around 1446 B.C., but it will focus on his spiritual work on the cross in 33, approximately 33 A.D. And so that's the background for the communion service. Our Lord Jesus Christ is going to the cross and He wants us to remember, just like he wanted Israel to remember what God had done for them. The Lord Jesus Christ, in God's plan, wants us as believers in the church age to remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so as we come to the Lord's table, to the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, it is, in fact, designed to remind us of the sins that were resolved at the cross, but it's also to remind us of his resurrection, the fact that we serve a living God. And I addressed that yesterday. We serve a living God. There is no other religion, there's no other cult, there's no other system of thought that serves a living God. Their uh, heroes are all dead. But the purpose here, again, is for us to understand our salvation. The salvation that is not dependent upon us. There is nothing we can do. And we stress that. That salvation is a free gift. It is the gift of God. And of nothing we can do. So we can add no works to it. It's simply who and what Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross. So the Lord's table, specifically as we look at the elements, the cup and the bread, are designed for us to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, his person and also his work. It's designed to remind us of the biblical truth that's involved with the elements. And I try to make this very clear, that the elements themselves are simply what we might call props. They are uh, tools They are instruments that are used to help us remember. If they were of some significance in themselves, we would have something much more significant than a little small glass 
of liquid and a little piece of unleavened bread. But they are not significant in themselves. What is significant is what they represent, what we learn from the Word of God, and how we assimilate that ourselves. So it's not the metabolization of the elements, but it's the metabolization or the assimilation of the biblical truth that they represent. The unleavened bread pictures Jesus Christ in his humanity. He was fully God. He was undiminished deity. But he was also complete and perfect humanity. And that's a problem for many people. It's a problem that this individual, who was God and who was human, could be both in one, without some sort of compromise of character. But God provided that person in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the unleavened bread pictures Christ in his humanity. In his human body and life, he was without sin. And that's what the unleavened bread represents. It represents the Lord without sin. So that he can go to the cross. He is qualified to go to the cross to bear the sins of the world, to pay for the guilt of our sins. He took them on himself. The cup symbolizes his blood, which represents his work on the cross. And as we think of his work and we think of the liquid, we have to go through a thought process that understands why we have a cup that has a red beverage. Because the red beverage represents blood. But blood represents death. That comes to us from the Old Testament. The animal would bleed to death, and there would be blood almost everywhere. So the red liquid represents blood, but the blood represents death. The death of the animal is physical. But our Lord Jesus Christ spends three hours on the cross when the earth is darkened while he is said to be separated from the Father. He is not physically or spiritually separated, but he is judicially separated. And it's at that time when our sins are being attributed to him, imputed to him, reckoned to him, and he resolves the issue of sin. Then, when the spiritual work is done, then Christ says it's finished. What's finished? The spiritual work. He has died how? Spiritually. And so, the blood represents death the death of the animal. But that death is also representative of his spiritual death for the payment of sin. And so we have to understand what the liquid really means. And so the unleavened bread for us represents who he is, his sinless perfection. And the cup represents his spiritual death on the cross. Yes, he does die physically. But he surrenders his spirit. He gives it up. His life was not taken. He dies spiritually on the cross for us so that we can live spiritually. So here we have 
the bread and the cup. They represent the qualifications of our Lord Jesus Christ to go to the cross and to provide the sacrifice while on the cross. His death provides the payment for sins for the entire human race. There are those who believe that it only is for those who will believe. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's for all. Therefore, it's simply a matter of anyone believing. And anyone who rejects, they're rejecting the cross. And that is the reason for their eternal existence in the lake of fire. We always take just a few seconds of spiritual preparation. I believe everyone here this morning understands precisely what we are doing. You do not need to be a member of the congregation to participate in the Lord's table. It's commanded for all believers. And so whether you are a member or not, you are required to participate. We also take just a few seconds for spiritual preparation, and our spiritual preparation includes confession of sins. The Eucharist, the Lord's table, communion is of no use to you if you're out of fellowship, if you're not walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And we achieve that by confession of sins, 1 John 1, 9. So this morning, you have just a few seconds for spiritual preparation as the deacons come forward to assist me in the communion service. Let's bow our heads in prayer. I'll ask Scott Craig to give a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread. Dear Father, thank you for this opportunity you've given us to come to your communion table. May we recognize that the, the small piece of bread that we will partake of will give us a representation of the work that Christ did as he came to this earth in his humanity and was able to withstand all temptation and be sinless Align us to be a substitutionary a substitute for our, our sins and break down the barrier of sin between us and, our, and, and you. We thank you for this, uh, for this substitutionary, the substitution that Jesus Christ did on our behalf, and we ask now that we concentrate on the, the actions that Jesus Christ took while on this earth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's our custom to retain the bread until all have been served.
once more the unleavened bread represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, his sinless perfection as he goes to the cross. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. In 1 Corinthians 11.24, we see in the same night in which he was betrayed and took bread, on the same night which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'll ask Niles Johnson if he will give a prayer of thanksgiving for the cup. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, who willingly went to the cross to redeem men from the bondage of sin and death. We remember his sacrifice as the Lamb of God who shed his life's blood for us because he loved us. The essence of our salvation is Christ's death. Thank you for the cross. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We ask that you retain the cup until all have been served. The cup represents his blood, which in turn is analogous to his spiritual death on the cross. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, his spiritual death, the forgiveness of sins. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the shifting of the focus from Egypt to the cross. Help us to understand the significance of this. We observe communion once a month. 
But Father, we should remember his sacrifice every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our custom to stand after communion and to sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. So please stand in your hymnals. It's page 258. Well, thank you. This is also our opportunity for another form of worship, and that form of worship is giving. Uh, The Lord has provided for us an opportunity to express our love towards Him in giving. He has blessed us in a monetary way, and it's our opportunity to respond to that love. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7, it says, This is my point, Paul says, but this I say, The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Therefore, each one of you should give just as he's decided in his heart. In other words, it's really between you and the Lord. There should be no outside pressure, no other reason. So we give not reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver, a person who simply gives willingly from the love in their hearts. And so... You have this opportunity uh, as we bow our heads for just a few seconds. Uh, We should already be in fellowship, but you have a few seconds as the ushers come forward, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have the opportunity to respond to you in love in this way. We pray, Father that you would help us to understand the significance of this form of worship. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are studying today, we're taking what you might call, oh, a special day for our independence. And began the first service by wishing everyone a happy birthday, because it is everyone's birthday. If you're an American, it is our 233rd birthday. And we need to understand what Independence Day means. And for many, it simply is either a day off or it's you know a, a day for baseball and hot dogs, uh, the pool, maybe playing golf, whatever that might be. And those are all you know, legitimate functions. But there needs to be a better understanding of Independence Day. And I think it's Better for, it to call, better for us to call it Independence Day, all, although the 4th of July is very easily substituted because it kind of rolls off our lips, and that was the day on which it occurred. But I think it has a tendency sometimes to have us celebrating a day that's somewhat disconnected with the actual event, the event of our independence. And it really was not the day of our independence. The day of our independence would be a long hard-fought war, one of the longest wars we have ever fought. But it was declared on that day, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, It was the day that uh, we had now a document that had been formed by 56 members or maybe more uh, uh, in the House at times, but 56 members will end up signing the Declaration of Independence. And one of the purposes for the message this morning was to emphasize, again, our Christian heritage, 
our spiritual background because today we have such an emphasis by those who are rewriting history. We call it revisionists, revisionists, revisionist history, where suddenly the uh, the foundation of our nation being in our Lord Jesus Christ on the the Word of God is being eliminated. And the only way that revisionistic history or, or that you can change history is if, number one, you find additional information. But somehow we find information that we didn't have before that changes previous facts. Well, that has not occurred. The other way that we are able to see a revision in history is if we don't know the original facts. If we don't know the truth upon which this nation was founded, then we're easily swayed. We believe anything else because we have no foundation. And so it's important for us to understand our history, our roots. And our roots are deeply embedded in spiritual things in Christianity. We talked about this nation, the start of this nation. It was providential. We use that word. It was guided by the hand of God. Those who came, came uh, predominantly for a specific purpose. And that was so they could worship as they determined, not as someone else determined. The king of England decided we're all going to be Anglicans. Well, there were those who disagreed. And there were those who disagreed uh, with Catholicism in Europe. And there were those who disagreed with the early forms of Protestantism in the other areas of Europe, like the Netherlands and uh, Germany and other areas. Although that was really the, uh, the area where our Bible churches began to grow. And so they came to the United States. And it was in the United States that they continued to teach their children and they continued to read their Bibles and go to church. And really, their rallying point was their churches. When the Declaration of Independence was finally inked, where did it go? It was given to the pastors. It was given to those who would be in the pulpits to read to their congregations because they knew that it had been the pastors who had been really supporting and providing the spiritual foundation for what was occurring in the colonies. And one of the things that I mentioned just ever so briefly in the opening service was that there is a a theological belief that the colonists... Were in, the, were in violation of the Word of God when they revolted against England. Well, I don't believe that's true. Of course, they'll use passages of Scripture, such as Romans 13, where we are to be in submission to governments. However, I think that we can prove theologically that this was not a revolution because those who lived in the United States at that time believed themselves to be free Britons and deserved to be treated like 
citizens of England. But they were not being treated that way. And it was the British lawmakers who were already in violation of British common law and in violation of the English Magna Carta and also their Bill of Rights. And so those who were here were living under tyranny. And is that the kind of government that we see or that we describe in a civil government? And I think in the Declaration of Independence, our founders lay out their arguments very clearly after 10 years from approximately 1764 to 1775, they peacefully and diplomatically petitioned England for their natural rights that they believe came to them from nature's God. And at every turn, they were rebuffed until finally they were really invaded. Now, there were actions on each side that... Uh, were either misunderstood or had specific purposes. But eventually it came down to whether those who were colonists here were going to be treated as uh, English citizens or whether they were not. And that really wasn't the my subject in the first hour. It's just on my mind as I was reading yesterday several articles that have been written about that. And one of these days I'll take the time and pull that together because I think there's several ways that we can look at that. But I was trying to demonstrate from different quotations that the United States at that time, the 13 colonies, were in fact really focused and founded on the word of God, his divine truth, and their uh, the future that they held for the United States was to be one that could also be easily seen as a Christian or a spiritual heritage. So we started to look at the founders of our nation and their Christian heritage. And we worked our way down through several, uh, starting with George Washington. We also saw, uh, I think the next one was uh, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin was another one. We also saw Samuel Adams, who was quite well known as a founding father and a signer of the Declaration of Independence, but he was also uh, a governor of Massachusetts, Massachusetts and also was known as the father of the American Revolution. Now, one of the things that I did not do uh, was read to you the full quotation of Benjamin Franklin. And I would like to read that to you because Benjamin Franklin in, at the convention of 1787, as they are now struggling to pull together a constitution that is going to replace the Articles of Confederation, they are naturally having difficulty. And so Benjamin Franklin stands up and he says, in the beginning of the contest, with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, as he addressed the president of the Constitutional Convention, our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of the superintending providence in our favor. 
To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And we and we and and have we now forgotten that powerful friend. I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire can is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall I also believe that that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little uh, we shall be divided by our little uh, parcels of local interest. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down in the futures shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate interest despair of of establishing governments of human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. He went on to say, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of the city be requested to officiate in that service. And so this is Benjamin Franklin recognizing the providence of God. And as I said in the first service, for Benjamin Franklin, who is often said to be a deist, this is not the request of a deist. The deist would assume that there is no no amount of prayer that would ever cause God to have any impact on the affairs of men. As I said, we saw Sam Adams. We also, let's see, we were coming up on, we saw Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush, who is the father of the public schools under the Constitution. He was the Surgeon General of the Continental Army and the father of the American of American medicine. Now let's look at another founder. His name is Robert Treat Payne. Many of you will probably recognize the last name Payne. But you may not recognize Robert Treat Payne. Interesting, Robert Treat Payne, he was a Boston attorney. Robert Treat Payne was a Boston attorney. And he was the attorney to whom it fell to prosecute the British soldiers who were accused of murder in the Boston Massacre. But do we know who opposed him in that legal trial? It was John Adams. John Adams opposed him and won. And John Adams, of course, simply was appealing 
to justice. And uh, Robert Treat Payne later on, even though he wanted to win that case, thought that John Adams, of course, had the stronger case. But anyhow, he was a signer of the, of the uh, Declaration of Independence and he served in the Continental Congress. And he said, I desire to bless and praise the name of God most high for appointing me my birth in a land of gospel light. And that's not L-I-T-E. That's not what he means here. Every now and then we'll hear someone say gospel light or doctrine light or something like that. But it's the illumination of the gospel where the glorious tidings of a Savior and of pardon and salvation through him have been continually sounding in my ears. Now, I don't know how many... uh, lawyers in government we have today that would say something like this. I wish we had many, and I'm sure we have some, but they probably, uh, they may think it, but they don't voice it. Uh, He also said, I've got another one here for him. Yes, I do. In his will, he said, when I consider that this instrument, his will, contemplates my departure from this life and all earthly enjoyments and my entrance on another state of existence, I am constrained to express my adoration of the Supreme Being, the author of my existence, in full belief of his providential goodness and his forgiving mercy revealed to the world through Jesus Christ, through whom I hope for never-ending happiness in a future state, acknowledging with grateful remembrance the happiness I've enjoyed in my passage through a long life. And so here is Robert Treat Payne, another uh, member who was participating in the Continental Congress and also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. The next individual I have here is John Dickinson, again, a signer of the Constitution and one of those who is not afraid, again, to use the name of Jesus Christ. He says, Rendering thanks to my Creator for my existence and station among His works, for my birth in a country enlightened by the gospel and enjoying freedom, and for all His other kindness, to Him I resign myself, humbly confiding in His goodness and in His mercy through Jesus Christ for the events of eternity. And again, as I read and study and go through some of these uh, passages, we don't recognize some of the uh, the statements and the way they're they're being uh, expressed. But it's simply the passage of time that, in some in some ways, hides the full intent here. But that's John Dickin uh, John Dickinson. Our next individual is Charles Carroll. He was a founding father. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he also was one of the surviving members. Not all of those who signed survived. But he said, On the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation and on his merits, not on the works I have done in obedience to his precepts. So he's not saying that he wasn't obedient to them or didn't want to be obedient, but he recognized that simply keeping or being faithful or being obedient was not going to be 
the, uh, the basis for his salvation. His salvation was believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. We have John Jay. John Jay was a founding father, president of the Continental Congress, and the original Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So this is our first Chief Justice. He was also the governor of New York and probably one of the three or four founding fathers most responsible for us having the Constitution today. He was one of the original founders of the American Bible Society and was the second president of the American Bible Society. So here we have our first chief executive of the Supreme Court. And he said that providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers. And it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Now, that's, that doesn't mean that we have to have Christians as rulers. But he's saying that the foundation upon which Christians should base their lives, the word of God, would make them good rulers. He also said, John Jay also said, I think I may have one more here. Yes. Unto him who is the author and giver of all good, I render sincere and humble thanks for his manifold and unmerited blessings, and especially for our redemption and salvation by his beloved son. Blessed be his holy name. A few other things that he said. He said, Condescend, merciful Father, to grant, uh, to grant as far as proper these imperfect petitions, talking about the, uh, uh, the Constitution, to accept, to accept these inadequate thanksgivings and to pardon whatever of sin hath mingled in them for the sake of Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord and Savior, under whom... With, under, unto whom with thee and the blessed spirit ever one God be rendered all honor and glory now and forever. I just need to spend more time reading the King James Version of the Bible and I probably would be able to read this, this a, little, a little better. He also said mercy and grace and favor did come by Jesus Christ and also that truth with which verified the promises and predictions concerning him, Jesus Christ, and which exposed and corrected the various errors which had been imbibed respecting the supreme being, his attributes, laws, and dis, uh, dispensations. And so our first chief justice, wearing a fine robe there, was also a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton on the day that he died, it was a day after the duel with Aaron Burr. Uh, he died 24 hours after being shot in that duel. While being attended by his pastor, he said, I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, who was our first uh, Secretary of Treasury, he was a general during the War of Independence, and he was a signer of the Constitution, said many other things. Thomas McKeon. Thomas McKeon. 
He's talking to... Let me back up here just one bit. Let me give you the foundation for this, for what he's saying. He was the chief justice, as the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, a number of cases, jury decisions and jury sentences came before him. And if an individual in his courtroom was sentenced to death, there was a general procedure that he practiced. This is what he would say. And we see this as an example. It was in 1778. It was the case of the Republic versus John Roberts. In that case, the jury found John Roberts guilty of treason and sentenced him to death. After John McKeon read the verdict, this was his response to John Roberts. He said, John Roberts, with this sentence, this means that you have very few days left, uh, very few days left to you upon this earth. It behooves you, therefore, in this period of time to make peace with your maker. You need to find a remission of your sins through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to call for someone who can lead you to that relationship with Jesus, whether it be a minister or a friend or just the sacred word of God. You are about to launch out into eternity and you are not prepared to meet God. So let's work on that now, right now. Uh, that's a, uh, an interesting uh, address from the judge. You probably would not expect that. We also have John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams, who was our sixth president, the son of John Adams. In the chain of human events, the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior. He sees those as indissolubly linked. The Declaration of Independence laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. John Quincy Adams. William Samuel Johnson. William Samuel Johnson. Again, he was a founding father, signed the Constitution under the Connecticut representatives. And he was one of America's leading educators and first ever president of Columbia College in New York. As a leading founding father and prominent educator, he was very often asked to address public school graduations. And here is a sample of William Samuel Johnson's speech at a public school graduation. You this day have received a public education. The purpose thereof hath been to qualify you the better to serve your creator and your country. Your first great duties, your first great duties, your sensible, are the, if you are sensible, I think I left out a word, are those you owe to heaven, to your creator and redeemer. Let these be ever present to your minds and exemplified in your lives and conduct. And for the rest of his speech, he went through specific Bible verses. In part, he said, Students, we are told in Acts 17.28 that in him we live and move and have our being. I want you to remember that apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing in your life. 
And so these are just some representatives of those thoughts and ideas that were prevalent during this period of history. Now, I also want to show you, just in closing, I think this is where we're probably going to to end, I want to show you a few of the state constitutions, just a paragraph here or there in several of the state constitutions. And I I don't have them all, but these are just uh, a sampling. The first one is the Delaware State Constitution. Everyone elected and appointed to office shall make and subscribe the following declaration to wit. I do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, his only Son and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore, and I do acknowledge by the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. That's the Delaware State Constitution. Now, I don't present this to say that this is you know, the absolute way it should be done because someone should be able to serve who is not a Christian. But what I show you is the mindset at that time. This doesn't appear to me to be secular. I could be wrong. <laughs> Pennsylvania State Constitution. We might expect a little something different here because we know that it was settled by William Penn, who was a Quaker. But each member of the legislature, before he takes his seat, shall make and subscribe the following declaration. I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good and the punisher of the wicked. And I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. I didn't write that. That is the Pennsylvania State Constitution. Aha, Massachusetts. The Massachusetts. I had a friend. I really wasn't a friend. He worked with me when I was on recruiting duty, and for three years I was only up there two years. And for two years, he always pronounced it Massachusetts, and that sticks in my mind. The Massachusetts State Constitution. They were to make and subscribe, all persons elected must make and subscribe the following declaration. I do declare that I believe the Christian religion and have firm persuasion of its truth. And North Carolina State Constitution. No person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Christian religion or the divine authority, either of the Old or New Testaments, or who shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state, shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within the state. And by the way, I don't think that narrowed down very many people during that period of time. And that's why I'm showing you these, these paragraphs. It was common for anyone who wanted to serve or serve, it would be pretty hard to find someone who didn't fall into these categories. But this was the persuasion that they had during that period of time, during the uh, 1700s, 1800s. So I believe that we had a spiritual heritage. I believe we have a spiritual heritage. I believe that we have a foundation in the Word of God in Christianity. And for those who say it didn't exist or say that it should be written out of our lives today, 
uh, are completely inconsistent with the origins of this nation. And so the facts are here. I think they're evident. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have the facts before us. And we're thankful, Father, that they placed, that the founders of this nation placed such great trust in the Word of God and in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, it is a blessing, as some of these have said, to be part of this great nation. Help us to continue to have that faith and that commitment. And help us, Father, and we pray also, Father, for this nation. We pray for the leaders of this nation. We pray, Father, that they would have the advisors or that the information would be provided to them that truly is objective and the divine truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.